Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. On February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Mora's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family at Direct at gmail.com, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Mora Murray. Welcome back to Missing Maura Murray. I'm Tim, being joined today by Lance, virtually. Lance, how are you today? I am doing so well today. How are you, Tim? I'm doing well. I really can't complain, Lance. Can't complain. Yeah, and I'm especially happy because we have a buddy on, our friend Josh Hallmark of True Crime Bullshit. Too much time always goes by before we have Josh back in our world again, and he comes every single time with something that is Sort of batshit crazy. He did True Crime Bullshit Season 1 and Season 2 about the serial killer Israel Keys. I I know a lot of people listen to that show. But Season 3 of True Crime Bullshit might be crazier. I mean, it's just as crazy, right? It's wild. I was just looking at the video that we recorded with Josh, and uh, you can find that on YouTube. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, my, my jaw was dropped at a couple points. I was kind of like, I was like, geez, Tim, you don't have to be so dramatic, but some of the things that Josh was saying were absolutely <laughs> crazy about this case of Kelly Cochran. 
Yeah, Kelly Cochran is a rare instance where you have a female serial killer who was active for so many years and probably is more uh, prolific than what she's been convicted for. I think she was convicted for just two murders, but I think what is uh, the theory she uh, and her husband were linked to maybe nine? Yeah, it's it's quite confusing, and Josh is really doing a great job trying to unpack it on his show because Kelly will tell the truth uh, one minute and then just lie for no reason the next. So it's been very tough to uh, figure out what's truth with Kelly Cochran. And then there's all of these bizarre, like, wild side stories about cannibalism, both yes. voluntary cannibalism and involuntary cannibalism. That's not even a joke. That that actually happened in this case. The way her husband died, you think that it's horrific, but then Josh tells you a little bit more, a little a little bit more detail about what Kelly did or claimed she did to her husband when he died. And now she's in prison and and Josh is waiting on the go ahead. I guess, for lack of a better word, to actually speak with her. Yeah, I can't wait to see if that happens, or I should say when that happens on his show, because I believe that it will eventually. So you really need to listen to True Crime BS, True Crime Bullshit, from Josh Hallmark. Subscribe. There are links in the show notes. And we hope you enjoy this interview with Josh. He's a great uh, buddy, and he's a lot of fun to chat with. Welcome back to the podcast, Josh Hallmark of True Crime Bullshit. Josh, how are you today? I'm good. How are you guys? Oh, oh. excellent. Thanks for asking. Yeah. We got the whole um, isolation routine down now. Seems, seems like you have your uh, system in place as well. You're uh, a bit in a uh, blacked out, looks like a coffin. <laughs> A little bit, you know, I really wanted to, um, I don't know, do be meta about this whole true crime thing. So I thought I would just record from inside a coffin in the basement of our farmhouse. <laughs> it's going to be, um, that's going to have a lot of uh, good qualities when you're trying to um, control sound. Because you're, are you, are you officially buried six feet underground as well? Um, I mean, only a foot just because I'm not, you know. I'm not a super muscular, energetic person. So, like, I tried to do the six feet thing, but I got tired and just was like, this will have to do. So, gotta dig through in and out. Yeah. 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 Probably a hassle every time. It Sounds is, great. Yeah. 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 The sound is exquisite. Yeah. I think you, I think you really hit on something here. I think this is going to be the new trend. <laughs> yeah. Like they say, no one can hear you screaming if you're below ground. So. Exactly. <laughs> um, just hook yourself up with that little bell. You know, that system. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, Josh Hallmark, okay, you Tim, join we're us talking again. about this coffin thing. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted. I was changing the subject. To something more relevant or something? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just so impressed with Josh's work. He does a podcast called True Crime Bullshit. And the first two seasons were on the serial killer Israel Keys. And Josh's approach is very unique. And Josh has spun off into a third season here on a different serial killer. Yeah, so this season I'm focusing on Kelly Cochran. And uh, a lot of people were disappointed that we were moving on from Keys. And 
I will say two things. One is like, we're still working on keys and there will be another key season coming. But more importantly, Kelly Cochran is an insane story um, that I think anyone who could appreciate the key story will appreciate this because we've got uh, just a insane sociopath. We've got lies. We've got cannibalism. We've got some very bizarre <laughs> um, crime cover-ups. Uh, it's a roller coaster in a way that the key story didn't quite deliver on. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a different telling. Um, with Israel Keys, he had been arrested and had committed suicide before you uh, embarked on your journey, which was sort of trying to connect um, missing people in the country to Keyes' spontaneous uh, killing trips that he that we know he took, and we know he's responsible, for, or we think he's responsible for more that uh, that he's officially spoken about at least. And so that was kind of your goal there, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think Kelly was a really great transition because there are a lot of very similar storytelling elements. You know, we know she killed more people than she was arrested for. Even that number is a little dubious. Um, and we kind of know her MO, uh, which much like Keys, there was a mythology and then the reality. And I think with Kelly, there's this built up mythology and you kind of break it down and find out a lot of it is bullshit. Um, and then you can get to the reality, which is like she has at least four or five other victims, possibly more than that. We know that they were all people that she had sexual affairs with um and so then it's a matter of matching up missing persons who disappeared in places she was under interesting circumstances so i think much like keys it is like building up all the facts and then going out and trying to match them to missing persons cases very cool can you give us a quick uh, background on kelly and when she was active as a serial killer and what got her started yeah, so we, we don't know when her serial killings began, um, but she was arrested in 2016. Her last known murder was October of 2014, so this is very recent. Uh, she, according to Kelly, who is a compulsive liar, um, when she married her husband, who was also her childhood sweetheart, they grew up next door to each other, he forced her into a murder pact like, on the night of their wedding, which was essentially, if she ever cheated, he would kill whoever she cheated with, and if he ever cheated, she would have to kill who he cheated with. Of course, Kelly told us about this pact after her husband um, mysteriously died while they were being investigated for another murder, so we don't really have any corroboration that it actually happened. But we do have corroboration that the two of them were killing people that they were having romantic affairs with. Um, and she studied, much like Key, she knew she was different. So she started studying psychopaths, um, sociopaths. She actually went to school for psychology. She also took a bunch of forensics courses, uh, interestingly. Yeah, so she really was a pro at, I guess, being a serial killer. She also studied serial killers. And she we talk about it in one of the most recent episodes. If you look at her <laughs> resume, it's basically like a best jobs for serial killers list. You know, she was a long haul truck driver. She was a pig farmer. She um, what worked in mines. So she had access to all these mm. abandoned mines all over the country. She um, built pools. So she was excavating you know, six to 10 feet deep holes in people's backyards and then filling them with concrete. So she 
more than anyone, um, like almost in an H.H. Holmes way, like had the ability to make bodies disappear without ever being questioned. Right. So you were, you mentioned that her and her husband um, came up with this murder pact the night of their wedding. Uh, if the other one were to cheat on them, then they would kill the respective lover. Uh, and then you said that they were, did you say that they were having affairs and killing the people that they were sleeping with? So... Yes. <laughs> and what happened? So these, it was like a, uh, it was like a serial killing couple. What happened to the husband? So funny story. Um, they got away with this for a significant amount of time. And again, we don't know when this began, but we can say at the earliest when they got married in 2002. But they got busted and started being looked into in 2014 when one of her coworkers, who she was having an affair with, disappeared. And... Everyone at work kind of pointed the finger at them saying, oh, they were having an affair. And also she had complained that her husband had threatened to kill her. So they started looking into him and the pressure really came onto them. Um, They fled the state. Eventually the cops caught up to them, brought him in for an interview. And they interviewed her husband first, who was this really meek kind of um, just mess. He had been in and out of mental health facilities. He was on just a a laundry list of uh, psychopharmaceuticals. And they interview him first, then they interview Kelly. And as Kelly's leaving, when she lawyers up, the investigator says very flippantly and untruthfully, um, oh, by the way, your husband had a lot to say. And then just several months later, her husband mysteriously dies of a drug overdose, uh, which we later come to find out. Spoiler alert. uh, So when they found his body, he had heroin in him and he had choked on his own vomit, which was, you know, all the telltale signs of an overdose. Later, we found out that Kelly had actually forced herself to throw up into his mouth. So it looked like he choked on his own vomit. Yes. um, smothered yes. him to death what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah you're saying that wasn't his vomit that he choked on no it was hers she she smothered him with a pillow and then threw up into his mouth to make it look like he choked on his own vomit i've never heard that that's that's uh, that's something else yeah she's a piece of work what's what's even more amazing is you started the story by saying funny story <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah that that was a that, yeah, that paid off that I was a yeah, that was there. a punchline yeah. Holy okay. Crap. So did they did they ever have a history of doing heroin? Did she just have heroin lying around? Was that so? That was actually in his system. It was actually in his system. Um, not enough to kill him, though. Uh, she had been a habitual drug user. He had not, other than you know, uh, prescribed drugs as far. And he smoked a lot of pot, which you know, to me is not a drug, but that's a different conversation. Um, and so that's she claimed drug. it's the gateway. It drug. is. Yes. <laughs> gateway to fun getting murdered by your wife um (laughs) so she said that he was under a lot of stress he wanted to try heroin to please her uh and you know sure enough the first time that happens he dies wow Wow. so how did they find that out did they um they suspect that he didn't die of the vomit that it looked like or i mean did the medical examiner discover that and then decide to test yeah they didn't test the vomit but they had already been investigating them, and when this happened, 
local law enforcement in Indiana where this took place kind of took it at face value, but Michigan came in, the state they had fled from, and were like, we want to be present for the medical examination. And when they did the, the ME, they found that he had been smothered. That was his cause of death. And when they revealed this to her, she finally was like, oh, yeah. And they were like, well, what about the vomit? And she said, oh, I threw up in his mouth. And she said it very nonchalantly, like it would be a normal thing to do when murdering somebody. Did They, they didn't ever test it, though, to find out if that was true? No, because at that point, it you know, he had been cremated. But she was a oh I see. But she uh, seems, and it's very clear in your um, in your work that she can hardly uh, tell the truth at all. No, and it's interesting because I I do think a lot of it is compulsive, but I think a lot of it is also premeditated. Um, oh okay. You you kind of come to find out through the story that she had been planning for getting caught for a very long time, and her alibi was always going to be was that her husband abused her and her husband did it, and she had done little things all along the way to make it look like her husband killed the victim that she got arrested for and that she was forced into doing it by her abusive husband. And she had dropped little hints. She had gone to HR at her work just a month before they killed her lover and said that her husband tried to kill her and threatened her. And then the day that they killed her lover, she told her husband that her phone was broken and needed to use his, um, and so was texting her lover with her husband's phone all day. So it looked like she had nothing to do with it. He was texting him. Um, she just was very calculated. So she's a liar uh, because she's a liar, but she's also a liar premeditatedly. And also in court, she lies a lot, and it's so, I believe that you can't believe anything she says. So how can you convict her for anything she said in the past? Uh, because she at times says, I'm a serial killer. I killed 21 people at times. She says she's never killed anyone in her life. And it, it there's not a like a timeline to this. It's just kind of, if you catch her on the right day, she's killed 20 people. And if you catch her on the wrong day, she's never killed anyone. And she's an abuse victim. It just, it goes back and forth. Jeez. Are you impressed by her when you're researching her and hearing what she's saying and starting to understand that she is, she has been planning all of these steps, even including her capture. When you when you see it all playing out like that and her behavior, do you take a step back and just say, like, if she was in a legit business, she probably would be a CEO? You know, are you impressed by her? You know, it's funny. I interview a. Um a criminal psychologist who's an expert in female psychopaths. And we talked a bit about Kelly as an underachiever and how much she could have gotten done with her life had she gone, you know, a more conventional route by not killing people. Um, and I am. And I, I've actually been challenging myself because my relationship with her versus with Keys is wildly different. Uh, and I don't know if it's because I spent three years working on the Keys case or I guess four and I've spent about four months working on the Kelly Cochran case, so I think there's more familiarity. But I tend to, with Keys, where I had a little more compassion because of his upbringing and was terrified of him and thought of him as someone who was a mixture of nature versus nurture that turned him into this monster who was like calculated and really smart, I tend to view Kelly as just like an unhinged psychopath who... Uh, 
chose to be awful. And I think that for me, that's actually like an inherent bias that I'm trying to work through. And Hmm. a lot of the season is going to be looking through the lens of sexism and true crime and how there's um, huge disparities in the ways we treat male victims and male killers versus female victims and female killers. Ah, yes. Yes. You know, real quick, you, you just said she chose to be awful. I don't believe she did, but that's always kind of my like visceral reaction with her yeah. because she's just so like, and I think it comes down to charisma. Key's had a lot of charisma. So when you're listening to him in these interviews, you're like, oh, this guy's a monster. But, um, you know, sometimes you're like, I get him uh, in a certain sense as to where Kelly has no charisma whatsoever. She just seems to enjoy being a monster. And so it's hard to really view her with more of an open mind, which again is that responsibility and onus is on me. Um, And so I'm trying to like get over these reactions I have to her, which are wildly different from my reactions to Keys. Yeah, you spent a lot of time with Keys, but it does seem like, yeah, she's got this uh, Machiavellianism um, about her that where she wants to manipulate and deceive yeah like he's always talked about wanting to be liked and wanting to feel like he was normal and even he couldn't murder someone if he had talked to them because as soon as he talked to someone he would just want to be friends with them Mm -hmm. and you know you can take that with a grain of salt but even just his wanting to tell that story i think says a lot about him as to where kelly goes in and you know speaks of herself as this murderous mastermind who doesn't give a shit about anybody and enjoyed killing people um And then a day later talks about how she's a victim of domestic abuse and her husband was this murderous mastermind and, you know, he killed the love of her life. And there's she's such a liar and it's such extremes that it's hard to really identify and care about anything she says. And you just see her as someone who like seems to be gloating that she murdered at least two innocent men. When you were looking into other serial killers to do for season three, I'm sure you had a list that you, you know, had laid out as possibilities. Was her being a female uh, something that put you over the top with with this particular case or did it not factor in at all? Was it just simply how she behaved or her personality and all of those things that you described? It kind of did. Uh, I think what it came down to for me was with Key's I spent so much time on on the Charlie Project and on NamUs and all these missing persons websites, and it really formulated the way I saw missing persons cases, which is most of the names on those lists are of middle-aged white men, um, which is not what is portrayed in the media. And I really even with the Keys case, was kind of internally struggling with what does that mean? What does that mean about our culture and our media and the way we treat men and women? And then I stumbled upon this woman who was killing mostly straight white men in their 30s and 40s. And I thought, wow, that's a great story to tell, especially when you think about female psychopaths and there isn't a lot of information about them. You know, I think most people can name one female serial killer. So I just thought, like, that's really interesting, and there are enough parallels between keys that I think it would make for a great transition. I enjoy the spectacle of Kelly a little bit. Like, it's such a contrast from keys, which was, like, very serious, and this is, like, very serious, but also there's so many just, like, cuckoo bananas pieces of it that it's it brings... Levity is a bad word, but it, it makes it a little more interesting, uh in ways that I had not done with Keys. Are you uh, exploring the ethos and pathos again? 
<laughs> I am. <laughs> Knee deep no. in the ethos and pathos. <laughs> or did you already answer that? Because I still don't know what those words mean. I'm, I mean, I did, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. Well, you said something uh, that was interesting about Keys, and I don't know if a lot of people talk about it because I think Keys is described as like a psychopath. I think a lot of people will say that he is um, the poster child or the poster boy for being a psychopath, serial killer. But then there's this uh, element to him that you talk about where he wants to um, really make sure people know that, hey, I don't like killing. I, I want to be their friends. And I'd rather be someone's friend. Like I, I want to be their friend and it hurts me to think that I'm going to have to kill this person. But that's not empathy, right? Because isn't that like one of the major uh, bullet points of being a psychopath is that you lack empathy. So is it just an act? Yeah. I or don't, do, or do you think that he actually did want to be friends with people? I mean, it's hard because yeah, Keys is a very complex figure. He has a daughter and, his whole thing after his arrest was like protecting his daughter and also to a certain extent, his girlfriend, um, which to me does not scream of empathy and you, or does not scream of a lack of empathy. And it's not something I've seen with other serial killers where once they're arrested, they seem to care at all about the people who were in their lives. Um, it could be argued that that's more of a like reputation thing and he doesn't want people to see him as a bad person. Um, uh, but even that, to an extent, is wildly different from Kelly, who doesn't seem to care how people see her. Um, and it's certainly like you look at Ted Bundy, who kind of at a certain point enjoyed being a monster and with keys that never existed. And he did seem to have a lot of conflicting feelings, uh, even kind of ambiguously or, or not as overtly when he's talking and he'll off the cuff mention like, oh man, this is really going to mess up my family. Uh, so to me that like, and I'm not a psychologist, but that was something that always resonated with the Keys case. Like he is a psychopath through and through almost definitively, but there are elements of like caring about other people. Have you ever had a lot of people reach out to you with um, some insight into Kelly's behavior? Any professionals uh, who listen to the show that maybe are, you know, possible contributors later on? Um, yeah. So I think what's interesting about Kelly is kind of like when I started with Keys, not many people knew about her, uh, but people have been responding pretty strongly. In fact, I got an email the other day of someone being like, I think um, some, your approach to this might be a little sexist and I was like no I agree uh, and I'm trust me it's coming we're working on it uh, and I've had some people like Michelle Kazuba who is heavily involved in uh, private investigations for the missing and she's been a huge contributor so I think there are a lot of people who have some expertise that I lack that have been participating at, at varying levels and I'm excited to kind of collaborate further with them uh, as we get further into this yeah that's cool what's the story about cannibalism Oh, man. Um, so, you know, this whole case is really predicated on the victim that got her caught, uh, which is different with Keys because, uh, you know, Samantha Koenig got him caught. But that was kind of like the the wrapping on the box that was Keys as to where Kelly, everything kind of comes back to this as her only known victim that was not her husband. He went missing two days later 
they hosted a barbecue at their house and invited their neighbors. Uh, and their neighbors said that for some people who were struggling with money, it was a significant amount of meat, and it tasted like meat they'd never tasted before. Uh, it had a weird texture and look, and when they asked Jason, he said, oh, yeah, I just, I've worked as an exotic meat butcher my whole life. And It had fingernails. Yeah, basically, and, and when you look into Jason's history, he's never been a butcher ever. Um, and then... Going the through, hell? which not, not, hasn't... Not, not in the traditional sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then going through, which will come out in a future episode, they make jokes with their friends on Facebook about like, oh, well, we're cannibals. Um, and they're, yeah. Uh, and they even talked about how when they had the pig farm, they weren't cannibals per se, but they were eating the pork that, had eaten their victims. So it, they allude to it way before this barbecue ever takes place. And everyone who attended the barbecue said that meat smelled strange, it tasted strange, and no one has ever found uh, this victim. Jesus. Yeah, it makes you wonder how two people uh, like that find each other. You know, are they like, can they spot each other in a crowd? You know what I mean? Like, or is it yeah, just. How did, they, how did like, these two meet? Yeah, yeah. They I, they grew up together, and we think, you know, Jason Cochran, yeah, was Sorry. this very emotionally fragile man who was dependent on Kelly in every aspect, financially, emotionally, psychologically, and she's a psychopath, and she's also incredibly manipulative, and I think that kind of like the Carla Homolka, and I forget, I forget her husband's name, that case, it's someone who sees someone who will do anything for them and exploits that, and... The criminal psychologist Joni Johnston, who I spoke with, said that in a lot of cases, people like Jason will derive pleasure not from the act, but from the pleasure that the act brings to their spouse. Uh, And so for him, it's about he's so dependent upon Kelly and he's able to do this thing for her, which in turn makes her value him more. And you think that it was her idea to come up with the murder pact, like all of this was her idea and she was flexing her influence on him. I don't think the murder pact ever happened. I think that's something she used as an excuse after he was dead and couldn't corroborate that it did or did not happen. Mm. Gotcha. But he really said that thing about being a butcher and like that would seem to be like enjoying the process of almost uh, getting one over on someone. I would would call that very psychotic uh, behavior. Yeah. And he... uh, (laughs) We get a manuscript again with the keys case. We had a manuscript, and uh, here we have Jason had been working on a manuscript, which was called Where Monsters Hide. Yeah. And it's basically about him uh, killing people. And there are some parallels to missing persons cases, which we'll get into in the series later on. Uh, Excellent. And it does kind of deep dive his psychology, which this is a deeply disturbed man who, again, I think was being manipulated by a woman who had murderous ideologies. And so she is currently incarcerated. She is. Where? Uh, In Indiana. I believe uh, Indiana or Michigan. I, I'm, I have to go set up a PO box and I've been avoiding doing that because of, you know, coronavirus. But once that is done, I will be sending her a letter because she really enjoys attention. So I imagine she will be more than happy to participate in the podcast. Are you afraid that she might work her 
her spell. She might cast a spell over you. Because Tim and I were talking offline, and we think that uh, mostly Tim feels this way. We feel like one of your cases that you do a deep dive in, there'll be like a Patty Hearst situation happening. And this, <laughs> this might be it. Tim was Tim was all about it. And I'm like, I don't know. Josh is like a really grounded, you know, well-rounded person. I think he can, you know, <laughs> mentally take this. And Tim was like, I don't know. Josh, um, I'm too young to have made the Patty Hearst reference. So you know that came from Lance. <laughs> I mean, look, could I be susceptible? Probably. Uh, but I was raised by a narcissist, so I know how they operate. So if it's going to be someone, it probably won't be Kelly. <laughs> well, okay. if Kelly's listening. Hi. You know, you missed your opportunity. You got yeah, to step up Kelly. your game with Josh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Was she also like a con person? She did uh, better backyards, but were, were some of her businesses like fake? <laughs> yeah, so she... Had a fake charity that we're looking into um, that was only in existence for three years while they were being sued by multiple people for unpaid medical bills and also for failures with their pool business. And so they're deep in debt. They have, I think, like five or six pending lawsuits. And then they start a non-for-profit charity that no one's ever heard of. So I think they were using that to funnel money into their legal fees, uh, which they eventually fled from because they couldn't pay them. Um, and then she was involved in this very strange company, which for now I'm calling the ABC company, which is so convoluted. I just highly re recommend listening to, I believe it's episode six. This weird, seems like a shell company based out of a different state where a lot of parallels to what Kelly was doing and this company was doing. Yeah. Very peculiar, yeah. Yeah, and then you look up the company and their address goes to an abandoned building and their phone number goes to just like a never-ending voicemail message. And it's one of the most bizarre and surprising components of this case because I thought I was just going to be looking into a serial killer, but here we're looking into like fraudulent businesses and like possible drug running and money laundering. So it's um, the case is really metastasized across the entire true crime genre, which was surprising and uh, fascinating. Like to me, I spent a lot of time looking into missing persons and serial killers. So it was a little fun to do something different and look into like shell companies. Are you planning on speaking with any of her relatives, like her brothers or anything? Yeah. So her brother and I, and I'm sure you've experienced this, um, he is would love to participate in an interview, but we just can't get it scheduled, which is a thing that happened a lot with the Keys case where people want to participate. And then as soon as you're like, OK, let's make it official, they kind of disappear. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. But I fingers crossed tomorrow am supposed to be interviewing the chief of police who investigated Kelly, as well as one of the Cochran's friends who actually turned FBI informant. So wow. Uh, yeah, a lot of people in this case are really actively involved, which is great because that was not the case with Keys. Uh, mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm interested to kind of talk to people who were on the ground and really experiencing this. Is it still an active case? No. So interestingly, she first was tried in Michigan for murdering her lover, Chris Regan, and was found guilty and given life in prison. And then she went and faced trial in Indiana for murdering her husband. And she pled out, uh, and mind you, she already has life in prison, so there's nothing really to gain or lose in this plea agreement. But somehow, it was entered into the plea agreement that if she pled guilty, they could not investigate, or they couldn't 
indict, arraign, or prosecute her for any other murders in the state of Indiana. So, which to me makes no sense at all, because why would they do that? Because she's yeah. already got life in prison. Um, and it also, to me, screams, like, there are more victims in Indiana. Yeah. <laughs> she's including this in her plea agreement. So sure. the case is closed. Um, they are not investigating. And so that's kind of where I feel like, well, kind of like okay. with Keys, if no one's going to do this, I might as well. Is anyone else investigating missing persons uh, other than you? Um, not to my knowledge. I mean, I'm I'm working like people on and my team, like it's not totally fair, but like people who are working with me on the podcast are. But I, to my knowledge, no one else is. Wow, renegade trailblazer. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. It could be something, or it could be nothing. <laughs> um, you mentioned that you were talking to the chief of police. Is this the the female chief of police? Yes, which is another like weird branch of the story. <laughs> Yeah. Well, tell us why is that why is that weird? She was the first female police officer in this town in upper uh the upper peninsula of Michigan. And then after working there for I think like 20 years, she became the first female chief of police in all of the upper peninsula of Michigan. And shortly after they started investigating Kelly Cochran, the town hired a new city manager who had a long list of firings as city manager in other cities for corruption, sexism, misappropriation of funds, and yet this town hired him anyway. And as soon as he came in, he basically targeted Chief Rizzo and did everything in his power to get her fired and basically waited for her to get Kelly arraigned, finish the investigation, and right before it was supposed to go to trial, um, he fired her. And then he became kind of the PR machine behind the investigation into Kelly, even though Chief Rizzo had done all the work and made all the relationships to make it happen. So he's kind of a piece of shit. Um, And then she had to, like, she couldn't get a job anywhere. She ended up working at Olive Garden, this 25-year police veteran who had solved the most notorious case in the Upper Peninsula history, and now she's working at Olive Garden for tips. Uh, it's just a devastating, like, weird tertiary story in this whole case. On what grounds was she fired? So it's funny, because when he announced it, it was for um, uh, irreconcilable differences. And then when she filed for unemployment, they said that they granted unemployment based on irreconcilable differences. And suddenly he changed it and said it was for insubordination and for cussing in front of him. Um, Cussing. She was able to, yeah. (laughs) She was able to win the unemployment. But then when she sued for wrongful termination, she lost the case, which was really sad. And then she appealed and lost the appeal. Was she replaced by a man? She, for a long time, wasn't replaced at all. And I actually, that's a good question that I don't have an answer for. But I, I would be surprised if she was replaced by a woman. Right. Wow. And how have you not written, like, um, an eight-part Fargo-style narrative series about this? Because this has so much character development potential backdrop of a serial killer a female serial killer cannibalism i mean you have a whole group of people who unintentionally became cannibals like that's insane i think and that's the thing where like people get upset that we're not doing keys and i'm like no this story is wild (laughs) like there's so many pieces of the story that um so i think 
we'll see what happens. What's interesting is with Keys, I had the files right away uh, from the FBI, and I had three years to go over them. Uh, I'm working with smaller jurisdictions now, and while we filed everything, oh gosh, six months ago, because of smaller jurisdictions and now the coronavirus, I haven't received a single file from oh, any of the three agencies yet. So it's also like every week I wake up and I'm like, oh, I don't know what this week is going to look like. Uh, so all the investigating right now I'm doing on my own. Um, I like was able to pull some profiles so I know like where they were at certain times. I have some of their cell phone records, but I don't have any of the police files. Allegedly, they're being mailed to me this week, but this is the seventh week in a row where I've heard that. So yeah, I, um, I'm eager to get those files and see everything I'm missing because they've sent me a table of contents and it's actually more file rich than the keys files were. Great. But once I have those and have a comprehensive look, I, I imagine there's quite a bit more story to tell here. You've done this a lot. You did it with keys and you're doing it with Cochrane. These, uh, you're filing freedom of, of information acts to, to get FBI files and case files. Uh, there's a lot of new, uh, there's a lot of newcomers to, the true crime podcasting, like producing a true crime show. Do you have any, any advice? Do you have any technique that you use? Because, you know, you can go about it the wrong way or you can go about it, you know, the Josh, Josh Hallmark way. Um, what's, what's your, what, what's your advice to people who are starting off? They want to get into a case. They want to do a deep dive and they want to get all the files. Like, how do you start? I, so I would say, Especially with true crime, because, you know, it's a very uh, populated genre right now. So, like, figure out what your niche is. Figure out what separates you from other true crime shows. Because we're not competitors by any means, but you do need to stand out. Uh, So figure out what you're going to do differently. And then do your own research. I cannot stress that enough. So file FOIAs. You need to do it at least 90 days in advance. I recommend 120 days in advance. And... I my biggest thing with Keys was I did not listen to anything else about him when I started researching him because I didn't want anything to bias my perspectives or views and I just wanted to go in fresh and with a clean slate and develop my own narrative and my own ideas. Uh, so I highly recommend just like avoid any pop culture references or media references that are not research based to whatever you're looking into uh, so you have your own voice. Um, and so it's not reductive or, um, you know, a copy of someone else's work, like have your own voice. Uh, I think those are the biggest ones. Stay true to yourself. My biggest regret with my first season was I wanted to tell the story while simultaneously looking at the story behind the story, which is like, how is true crime impacting investigations how is true crime impacting the people involved in it and after three episodes i got some criticisms of like oh he's intellectual he needs to stop like this isn't about him he's you know and so i immediately stopped doing that and i really regret it because i think that's an important story to tell um so yeah like figure out what you're doing what makes you different and do not veer from that and then again do your own research you do not want to like even sound like you're copying someone else like have your own ideas your own points of view stay true to them
When a person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter Brianna disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.